Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday follow-up for Season 13 and the murder of Jody Jones, Part 5. This week, Bob and Dr. Sandra Lean sat down to discuss Luke Mitchell's defense and the shortcomings of the prosecution's case. Once again, this episode has produced a lot of great questions, and Bob, Janet, and I are going to do our best to get them answered. But before we jump into those, is there anything we need to talk about? Yes, there is. A couple things. So last week, I told you that this week, I'm going to cover Robert's habeas uh, that was filed. And as it turns out, it wasn't filed. So the thing that everybody's talking about is just a response to the federal habeas that was an appeal from a previous appeal. So there were there was a response in this federal habeas that came out. It's all this is all still old stuff. Nothing new is raised in this appeal. So for those of you that are going, Bob, why didn't they use any of the stuff you found? They can't even if they wanted to in this. So I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to do is so after our follow up last week, Dr. Lean was listening to it, emailed me back with some answers to some of the stuff Zach was talking about. We might get into some of those a little bit now, maybe not. And then we, we got into talking about a few other things with the case and other things that we haven't been brought up yet. And it, it occurred to me that you know maybe the best thing to do is bring Dr. Lean on for one last episode to put a button on this whole thing. We had talked about it being a sick part series anyway, and unlike last week where my math told me that last week was part six, it was actually part five. So this Sunday will be part six, the final episode of the the Murder of Jody Jones series, and that'll be Dr. Lean again. I'm going to be interviewing her on Thursday, and then we're wrapped for season 13. As I mentioned last week, after this, I'm going to start publishing on the main feed the Adnan episodes. So that's coming up. That'll be coming up the next Sunday. I'm going to start publishing those. I'm going to make that season 14 because it looks like it's going to be at least 16 episodes for us to get through because I've already had to double up on two of them. I want them all in one package where if somebody has listened to the prosecutor's podcast, they've maybe been convinced of Adnan's guilt and they want to hear the other side of it. They can go and here's listen to season 14 in a row. And I told you guys last week, but I remind you again that sometime through the week next week. You're going to get a couple of downloads. They, they won't be on our normal publishing days, but I'm going to put out an introduction to the reply, the reply brief, which I'm explaining what's going on because, you know, originally this was just supposed to be a bonus for our patrons and now it's coming out there. So there'll be a short introduction episode that's going to come out. Then I'm going to publish episode one again because I had already put that episode in the main feed earlier. Remember the first episode where I kind of talked about what they were doing. That was on the main feed before he took it to Patreon. So I'm going to put that out again so that they're all in order in a nice package. So you'll get so you'll see the introduction come out. You'll see episode one come out again. If you already listened to episode one, obviously don't need to listen to that. You probably don't need to listen to the introduction if you're listening to this, because you're if you're listening to the follow ups, you're keeping up with what's going on. And then Sunday, episode two of Reply Brief will go live and that'll start then. So that's all what's coming up now. For our patrons, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, on Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., episode for part 6.5 is going to come out. And this is the one where I, after the prosecutors did their episode where they talked all about the Asia letters, they said that she didn't write them and they 100% know that Adnan is the one that wrote the letters and she was begging to help him create an alibi, so on and so forth. I was talking to Asia and they had never... They, of course, didn't ask her for any comment or touch base with her. So I offered her the opportunity to come on and defend herself. And that's what she does. So the episode on the Patreon feed this week 
is about a 45, 50 minute interview with Asia McLean, where she's telling her version of what happened all the way from when she wrote the letters through the PCR hearings through today. And then she lets you know what she thinks about the accusations made by the prosecutors on such a big public platform. So that is uh, this week's episode of Reply Brief. And if those of you that are just waiting for it on the free feed, so, you know, in a few weeks, that'll come out on the free feed as well. Six weeks from now, it'll it'll be out. So that's the plan moving forward. Other little things we have going on. So we've got a lot of stuff happening coming up here pretty quickly. So we have Obsessed Fest is next week. So Janet, Zach, and I, all three are heading to Dallas on Thursday next week. The plan is, think, for next week to still have a normal follow-up. We're recorded on Tuesday, uh, and then our awesome editor, Brandon, hopefully will knock that out on Wednesday, and we'll get it published, and we'll have a normal follow-up. And then there'll be, of course, the Adnan episode coming out after that. The following week, I'm home for like three days, and that is when I've been talking about all year. I'm gone to Colorado for 10 days, uh, and we'll be without any internet service or phone service at all during then. So we were, what I was going to do was just maybe put out another one of the Adnan episodes so you guys have an episode on Friday. But then Zach reminded me that we're doing a live follow-up at Obsessed Fest next week. So assuming that goes well and we're able to get that recording, that is the episode you'll get on will be the 25th, 6th, 27th, I think, of October, that Friday. Because a lot of you are asking about that. Can you ever hear that? That should be the live from Obsessed Fest follow-up. And then we'll be back. Everything will be back to normal. And we'll just keep plugging along so after that point forward patrons we're going to continue moving on with the Anansayed reply brief series we'll be up to episode eight or so by then and then on the main feed we'll be starting from the beginning playing the ones that haven't been on the main feed yet so those will be ha- things will be happening simultaneously with that i don't think can you think either of you think of any other kind of housekeeping stuff you should call it season 1.2 or 1.5 no nothing all right Great, great, great housekeeping. Uh, I also want to just shout out Valeria, who reminds us that today, that the day that we're recording this is Christian's 35th birthday. So if you would like to weigh in, send your best wishes, etc. There is a post on Facebook that Valeria has created where people can add their message or messages or wishes, and she will make sure that he sees them. So thank you so much for handling that, Valeria, and happy birthday, Christian. Yes. Happy birthday to Christian. And uh, if we don't have any other housekeeping, let's get right into, as I mentioned, Dr. Lean's coming back on. I I glanced through some of these questions. Some of them I'm going to be able to answer. Some of them I won't be, but we'll talk through them real quick because everything, anything that I can't answer is all going into the bucket for me to ask Dr. Lean on Thursday. Great. Sounds good. Well, let's start with Bonnie, who says, is there a timeline anywhere that shows the activities that night? Even though I know people change their stories and times, it's still confusing trying to understand where Luke, the owner of the condom, the moped riders, the bicyclists, the witnesses, the sister's boyfriend's dinner with the dad were. I think to understand it all, I need to see a timeline. So I've come across a couple online, but as the listener alluded to, everybody has a different version of what happened in the time. So I don't know that there's an accurate timeline out there somewhere. I can kind of do my best to walk through. So everything from 450 before that, everything's normal, normal, right? So it was it like 434, I think, or the text between Luke and... Uh, that sounds right. I don't remember right off the top of my head, but that sounds right. I think it's between 434 and 438. They're the text between Luke and Judith's phone where Luke is talking to Jody. Then either at 450 or at 530, Jody leaves the house. According to Luke and his family, Luke's home cooking dinner. They eat dinner around 515. And then sometime around 530, he goes down to the wall and he's waiting for Jody. 
Now, all we know about Jody is she was seen with the stocky man following her. That seems like a pretty legitimate sighting, which was, I think they said, was at like five after five because there was people that actually know her said that was her walking with this person. Uh, I have also heard that the stocky man is identified and Dr. Lean didn't mention who it was, so I may ask her about that too. So after that sighting of Jody around 5.05, walking towards the Roan Dyke path, no one sees her again. That's the end, that's the end of any sightings of Jody, other than the Adrena sighting where she saw the couple that were standing there by the by the path. But that one does not, to me, seem very legitimate, considering like even the clothing is all the wrong color. Everything seems to be wrong about that. On Luke's side, they have we have people seeing him sitting on the wall at the end of his road, not the wall on the road side path, until around six o'clock, I believe. Then there's a witness that sees him up near the path. I think at six or a little after six. And then after that, you have his friends that see him at the Abbey until about, you know, from like seven o'clock on until, I don't know, it was like nine or nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock, somewhere around there. And that's when Jody's mom, Judith, calls Luke looking for Jody. According to Luke, he says, I haven't seen Jody. Or, well, we know, we know that he said this, at least. I haven't seen her. She never came, came over here. Luke says, I'll walk back towards you guys down the path and... If I don't find her, then we'll meet up and figure out what to do. Luke walks down the path. He gets to right about 11 o'clock, 11, 11.05, 11.10, somewhere around there, is when he meets what they call the search trio, which is Jody's sister, Janine, her boyfriend, Stephen, and the grandmother, Alice, are all at the entrance to the path on the East House's side. Then the three of them walk back towards, you know, uh, uh, and that's when Mia, Luke's dog, supposedly alerts to the V in the wall, and they go over and find her. Uh, and I realized as I went through that, what I left out of that is we back up at about 5.15. Someone sees the moped parked outside the V in the wall, but the moped boys aren't there. One of the moped boys is Jody's cousin, who admits to being there and having the moped there. He says that it was 45 minutes prior to that. As far as the guy with the condom that was found out there, he also admits to being there that night. I believe he says he was there around 10 o'clock at night, which so that would be after Jody's murdered about an hour before she's found. He was right there within 20 yards of, of her body. And then you have the bicycle, I think. And, and we'll get it. I don't want to get because I, th- I think we have questions about this. But I, I had a little issue with the timing stuff with the bike and the moped and, and how that worked out uh, with the bike going by. But. I think that's basically the timeline, other than, you know, it was 1138, I think, when they called 999, and the police came. Luke is immediately, you know, he's taken to the station. He's he's there all night. I think that's his, and, and I'm realizing as I went through it, that probably wasn't the cleanest, clearest timeline. But that's exactly the point. There is not a clean, clear timeline. Yeah, and that's true, because normally I'm able to say, we know that at this time this happened, at this time this happened, this time this happened, based on phone records or whatever. We don't really have that in this case. a couple of questions that I don't think came up in our listener questions and they're sort of attached to each other. One is, so just so I'm clear, is the V in the wall kind of the way that you would access that area or is there a way around the wall or if you're coming from a different area, are you on the other side of the wall just by virtue of where you live if you're in that, you know what I mean? Like are people getting over the wall in some other way? I think you can just be on the other side of the wall. Like if you came from the north, you would just be on the other side of the wall. 
when I look at the aerial images now, and I don't know if this was the case then, in the aerial images now, there's like a golf course and then a strip of forest before the wall. So like if you came, like you'd have to like go through the golf course, through the woods from the other other way. If you weren't on a path, I think if you just came from, I, I don't know how, I don't know how the wall, if the wall then extends north, because Roan's Dyke path runs east and west. I don't know if the path at the ends then extends up to the north where like it would be blocking it off from getting in. From what I'm told, the entire length of the Ronesdike path, it's a very tall wall that you can't get over other than this one place. So if you're trying to get into the woods from the path, it seems like that V-break is the only place you could do that. Okay. And do we know if the condom gentleman was coming from the north or did would he have had to climb over the wall? I don't know, but that's a good question to ask Dr. Lean. So it sounded like there was another trail that kind of went off and it sounded like he had access. So I, I wonder if he had, if he could come from that other side. So the trail she's talking about, the lady path, mm-hmm. that is when the Ronesdike path gets all the way to East houses, it comes to a T of lady path, which runs North and South. Okay. So they're like perpendicular to each other. So that path is like when you get back to the town, then you come to Lady Path. And then if you go down south, and now that I'm I'm saying that, I was going to look that up. Didn't she say that he lived near the Cousins? She did say within a couple houses, yes. Yeah, so that would be south. So so to answer your question, Janet, he would have been coming from the south, I believe, because she said the, the Moped Boys lived down Lady Path to the south. Wow. I know you can see it on Zoom, the people that are listening. can't. But you know, if you, if you went east along the path, got to Lady Path, went down, he lives somewhere down here. So he would have, I would assume then had to have jumped through the V to get over there. So that ties into a comment that you made with Dr. Lean in the episode, which is as we imagine this person in the time that he says that he is doing this is jumping over the wall. I know it's dark-ish. Mm-hmm. It's dark, right? I mean, but it's it also yeah. was less dark than many people might think it would be at that time of night. I think sunset was like hours before I don't know. Remember, she, remember Dr. Lean's talking about things getting gray dark and it sounding like it was later than I remember thinking that that's later than I expected to hear it was getting dark. Oh, yeah. What she said it was around like eight, nine o'clock or something. Someone in the chat will remember. But I, I thought, yeah, I thought that it was. Yeah, she said it got late. She said it was getting dark at like 10. I, that's what I thought, too. That could be. So anyway, so yeah, so it's not, so we're just starting to talk about it getting dark around the time this person is jumping the wall when there is ostensibly a body that is pretty findable from how we understand it, like shortly after jumping over the wall. I believe, so if you go over the wall, like over through the V, mm-hmm. believe Jody's body was to the left. Okay. And kind of behind a tree a little bit. Because okay. like Luke went that way and found her behind a tree, so did Steven. And then the condom was about 20 yards away, I believe, back to the right. Okay. So I, I think that you could go over the wall and go to the condom without coming across the body. Okay. But then she said that the way he described where he walked, that he would have walked right almost on top of mm-hmm. the body. So that sort of brings me to my final point, which is this comment that you made as you are walking through all of this with Dr. Lane. You said, wow, something like, gosh, that's a lot of activity right in the area in which someone is ostensibly being killed. There's just a lot going on there for all these different people to not see anything, to not hear anything. There's the question of what the guy on the bike heard and what that could have been. Mm -hmm. But I imagine you don't have a theory, but one could imagine that after you make that comment, there's a question that's raised of, was she killed in that location or was she placed there? 
I was wondering the same thing. There wasn't anything from what I understand from the autopsy that indicates, and, and, and again, the time frame was too short, right? So if she's killed sometime after five o'clock and she's found at 11 o'clock, it's not enough time for lividity to, lividity to have fixed. So there's nothing we can tell medically, like if she was moved. Certainly it seems she was stripped in that location. It's not noted that there were any drag marks. It's pretty rough terrain. I can't imagine someone moved her dead body down the path. It would have to be through the woods. I think she probably was killed there. I have a theory about the condom guy. That whole situation so strange. But I wonder if he did see the body and, you know, like it's a red herring. Like he didn't kill her. But what if he came across the body, the nude body, and that what led to him doing what he did? What? I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just I'm because I'm trying to figure because we have all this physical evidence on her body that has nothing to do with him. Right. But he's in the woods, masturbating steps away from a nude dead body. To me, logically, I think, well, could the nude dead body be the thing that aroused him? I'm going to skip ahead really quickly because we're on that subject just to um, quote Brian and then Sue had a similar question in the follow up uh, posts, which was just me. But I was thrown off by saying he used a condom to satisfy himself. Who does that? That is not something that you guys really went into. Maybe it's common. It is a little surprising that you would be in the forest outside, but you would elect. And I'm not a dude. And again, this is an awkward conversation, but I'm just not sure what the incentive is to do it into a condom and then discard the condom in the forest. Yeah, I mean, I can I can tell you as a guy, it doesn't make sense to me either. If that makes you feel any better, yeah. I can see situations where it may be advantageous to use a condom. Being out in the middle of the forest, supposedly thinking you're alone and there's nothing else going on there seems like a super weird time. And then none of it makes sense, right? So, but then you leave the condom, leaving evidence of what you've done there. I, I don't know. I don't know. I said the, the only thing that makes sense, any sense to me at all and again, this is just what makes sense to me is if he came across the body and that is what led to, I, I don't even know what the right word to pick. That's what aroused him. But you're saying that he would already have the condom with him and then he would. Well, I don't know. Right. So what if, what if he came across the body earlier and was like, I don't know the whole, the whole thing. Like I know besides it being awkward, let's get over it being awkward. It does. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Like I, like I, I'm like walking through scenarios, like, comes across like, oh, that's, oh, I'm going to go back to my house and get a condom so I can come back here because I don't want to leave. Well, but then why do you leave it then? Here's my, again, one crazy theory, one, one, put my tinfoil hat on, is if he sees the dead body and some, for some reason, whatever this guy's got going on has aroused him and he wants to go do what he's going to do, but he doesn't want to leave evidence of himself. If he did that right up close and personal where he could see everything, and then walked away where he thought maybe it was you know far enough away in the woods and then discarded it there. That's the best I can do for a theory on why that happened. Well, Susan, my next question is your next question. So I want to shout you out in the chat. Do we know for sure that he isn't protecting someone and that it wasn't him actually having sex with someone that he is protecting, saying that he was by himself because that person is in a relationship? He's in a relationship. What? We, we don't know for sure anything. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if when they tested the DNA, they would have seen an indication of another pre another person. His story of it being from him masturbating holds up in the fact that, to my knowledge, they didn't find anyone's DNA on the condom except his. And I would expect that if he had sex with somebody that you would find that person's DNA on it as well. 
So if it's just his on there, then then story adds up. So then that's I should make clear the other possibility is that he's telling the truth and he just, as you put it, decided to go for a wank in the woods. Erica in the chat says, I have evaluated hundreds of sex offenders. This is not unusual. It's not an unusual act, according to Erica, to use a condom in that way. That's interesting, Erica. I'll, I'll keep an eye on the chat if you want to follow up on that, because just the act of using a condom for sex offenders is not unusual. Or do you mean that the person who committed the sex offense against the person would then do it? Like, mean, you know, meaning like we got to be careful here because this is obviously a, a real person who's known, but. She says, okay, she says offenders are aroused by public masturbation and some use condoms as well, she said. I want to go back to something we talked real quick and we don't have to stay there very long. We talked about the idea that maybe she wasn't murdered in that location and put there. But the idea, I mean, because that's such a high traffic area that like there's all these people going by, how could she be murdered there? But then I feel like the same way if she wasn't murdered there, like there's all those people there, you're really going to risk putting a body there. Sure. Yeah. To be seen. So great point. The whole, the whole crime scene, bizarre. And it, I already thought it was bizarre before we got all these details this week. Usually I feel like I'm pretty good at being able to take in the evidence and come up with a sensible, maybe not the right one, but a sensible theory. And I, I don't have a sensible theory here. The, the the theories that make sense to me just sound so crazy, even to my own self, that I, I don't know. Allison says, was the person who saw the moped the same man who was cycling along the path? If not, who was this person? And did they also say they didn't hear anything or see anyone else? And if that other person is, exists, why weren't they considered a suspect? And Allison adds, more more rhetorical since no one else was really considered a suspect, it seems. Yeah, I, I, that's another qu- follow-up question that I have, too, is who saw the moped? And I don't know how I missed that in the first interview. Like, was was it the... I don't think it was the bike guy, because the bike guy, the, the, the cyclist, testified that he heard a strangling sound and she said that his original police report said he just heard some leaves rustling when he was over there i don't think that would be put up as prosecution's evidence at trial if it was i heard a strangling noise while there was a moped there mm-hmm. so i'm thinking it was somebody else but uh well I, and it sounded like the strangling noise was pushed on him because it didn't say strangling at the beginning right but i'm saying like, like if, if that was pushed on him by the prosecution the prosecution puts him on I don't think they would do that, even if he's telling the truth about the strangling noise, if he heard the strangling noise while also seeing the moped there, because that looks that looks very much like it wasn't Luke. Right. So it seems like it's somebody else. But I don't I'm going to ask that question. Okay. Aliyah says, did the beer guy take the stand and admit that it was him on the road? If so, this eliminates one of the three prosecution's arguments. Did the person who saw and knows Jody come on the stand, too, as this is a strong sighting and calls the prosecution's timeline into question? If so. I solely blame the jury. I don't know. And I'm realizing I'm reading this that I did a poor job of following up in that interview because like when she was saying to me that this person that saw Stocky Man and identified him or and, I, and knew Jody, I, I'm always looking less at the, the legal side of it and more at the practical side of it. So I'm looking at like, okay, how do we know if Luke did this or didn't do this? And I should have asked that question. Like, did that person testify? Did that happen in the trial? So I, I'll, I will follow up with that in the follow up interview. Yeah, they're just all of the sightings remain very confusing to me as well, just because they conflict with each other so much. I know that regarding that, the uh, the stocky man sighting that someone, as she said, someone said they know who stocky man is. 
and that person was known to be out of the country. So I'm guessing maybe they didn't end up testifying because it kind of sounded like it was somebody said, oh, that's this guy. And then that guy was out of the country. So they're like, ah, that guy's alibi, which is a weird train of logic because it should be, well, the guy that was walking behind her wasn't out of the country. So that must not have been that guy. But it kind of sounded like it was kind of, it was kind of turned into that the guy was alibied, so it wasn't worth putting up. I don't know. That was very strange. That was very mm-hmm. strange. Yeah, it was non-logic. Aliyah also is asking if the gentleman with the condom had a criminal record, why he was in the database, and then also interested in whether or not there might be known connections between Jody's sister's boyfriend and the other various people who were uh, who admitted to being near the crime scene like condom guy or the motorbike cousin nothing that dr lean mentioned and nothing that i've seen when i've read online searching about that as far as the connection between them but also this is a very very small village so we don't know i mean we know that condom guy and moped boys live near each other i don't know if they had a relationship and i don't know what Janine's boyfriend's relationship with any of them was either. Because I believe, didn't she say that he lived in a different village? Uh, I don't remember what she said. I know that she said she didn't live there. Yeah. So Jennifer says, it sounds like Sarah G on Facebook had mentioned in a, in a comment thread that Luke had threatened a former girlfriend before dating Jody and held a knife to her throat. And Sarah followed up just to confirm that that source was the UK podcast, We Walk Among Us, season two, episodes 13 and 14. So I gave that a listen. And uh, sure enough, that narrator, from where I, do- I don't know, says that that apparently happened at some time to someone else before Jody. I don't know what the source is. I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. No, I don't know what the source is either, but I've heard it on on about three other podcasts as well where yeah. they where they mention that. I, so that's the first I heard of that is when I saw this question, and it's on my list to ask Doctor Lean because again, so from what I learned from Doctor Lean this week is police records are never available to the public in Scotland, according to her. So then it makes me wonder about the source. It maybe the source is that that girl who came forward and said that this had happened earlier i i don't i don't know what the source is that's all i i heard did you did you catch a source anywhere zach i never caught a source uh, i i like i said i heard it in multiple podcasts that that had been presented but i've never caught a source and i don't know if it was possibly kids saying it or if it was the ex-girlfriend saying it or who knows yeah i do i i should have mentioned this earlier uh it's going to be discussed in in detail in sunday's episode because i want to dig into it a little more but i, I did want to because last week's follow-up zach was asking about the knife we didn't talk about where this missing knife was. According to what Dr. Lean sent me this week, she said that the knife has never been missing. She said that the knife that belongs in that sheath was turned over to the state by Luke's attorney. It is, it's not missing. That's all I know about that for now. And she said that she has like the notes or whatever about that happening. So we'll, we'll go over that on Sunday. But I, it just that just popped in my head that that was another thing that we had kind of hanging out there. Because everything says this knife is missing and she says that it was not missing. Yeah, it's hard with with some of those anecdotes that end up on podcasts. And and I say that with a full irony, knowing that we are a podcast talking about this case. But it's difficult because you just don't know what the primary source is. And that's what we find a lot of times on the internet, too, right, is this repetition of one person said something that ended up not being true, but it just keeps being reported over and over and over and over and over again. And it may be yeah. true. I'm not saying it's not, but it's hard when you don't have, it's hard when you don't have the source. Well, it turns into this game of telephone, right? It's it's just like with, it is an example, because that's where my head's been at lately, in Adnan's case. 
people keep saying over and over again that everybody knew, everybody overheard that Adnan asked Hay for a ride because his car was in the shop. And it's, it's repeated over and over again. Everybody knew this. And then when you actually go through the source documents and read it, it's like, no, there's one single source for that about Adnan's car being the shop. And that was Krista who heard the conversation. And she has said, I didn't hear him say his car was in the shop. I just heard him ask for a ride. And I assumed it was because his car was in the shop. So that that's just like one example of how that story gets told. The next one gets told. The next version of it gets told. And pretty soon everybody's saying something is, is happening. That's why I feel very, I feel very naked. If I'm going to be honest, doing all like this right now, because I I'm so uncomfortable working without source documents. I have Dr. Lean giving me information has access to the file, but I don't have access to the file. This is probably the most unsure of myself. All of you have ever heard me, but I'm so unsure of myself right now uh, and super uncomfortable with all this. Just so, just so you know. Nick wants to know if anyone in Jody's family was law enforcement. Not that I'm aware of. And I do want to. I, so Kate just said something in the chat that I want to. So Kate asked Zach if you found any pro guilt podcast or YouTube videos. So is the is is the podcast you guys are talking about that cited the threats to the ex-girlfriend? Is that one that is more pro innocence? Uh, I have not listened to that particular podcast that that she cited. I know that I've heard a couple more, but I cannot remember the names on the top of my head. Do you know, Jana? Did, did, were I, they kind of an. I listened to, there were two episodes. I listened to the first one and I listened to half of the second one and then I ran out of time. So I don't know if I could say that it's either guilt or innocence. My sense of it up to this point is sort of that it seemed like it was trying to just give as much information as it could. Just to be neutral. Yeah, with staying neutral. But it may take a twist towards the end. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I've stumbled across a few YouTube videos that, that are pro-guilt, but... It's tough because the, their pro-guilt stuff that they're presenting is using the Marilyn Manson, is using the Black Dahlia, right. is, you know, so it is pretty farce. Now, there is some information, like you said, with this, this the girlfriend and there's some things like that, that that could be true, but they also are citing things that we know are farce. Gotcha. And Amy says that the podcast, I think is when we're talking about They Walk Among Us. She said it, she thinks it seemed more guilt-driven to her, but it, it, it leaned that way, but it wasn't hardcore. Well, and I think there's another one called The Devil's Own that is a pro-guilt documentary about it. Okay. Hmm. Olivia says, did Janine and Stephen marry? That's Jody's sister and boyfriend, right? Or is that the boyfriend of the mom? Stephen was Janine's boyfriend. Okay. The sister. Okay, got yeah, it. I don't know if they got married. Okay. And then Olivia also says, I wonder if Dr. Lean ever chatted to anyone who changed their stories or times because they were afraid or coerced or other reasons in later years it would be interesting to hear their stories. She mentioned somebody who said on the record that the police had kind of driven their, their stories or pushed them into a narrative. I don't remember which one it was, though. I know I know there was like Luke's brother, that account, but I feel like there was somebody else. Maybe it was the cyclist. It was the cyclist, I thought, because that he's the one that said he heard rustling, rustling and then that transformed into he heard strangulation, yeah. and he was worried that he would become a suspect. Right, but that, yeah. but yeah. that, that implication from Dr. Lean, I, as I understood it, was he actually did hear strangling, but he was afraid to say that because he thought that that would implicate him. And so that somehow the truth was that he had heard something more. Now I could be oh, that's not how I took totally it. Yeah, that's not wrong how I took about it that. Somehow I, underst- I, I thought she was saying that 
when she spoke to him, he said, I was afraid I was being looked at as a suspect. So I only said this at the beginning, but I may have completely misunderstood that and probably did. You might be right. The way I the way I took it was that he just heard rustling sticks in the police or prosecution was leaning on him to make that more of an incriminating statement. And he felt like and this is just was my impression of what she mm-hmm. said, that he felt like they were going to like make him a suspect if he didn't go along with what they were trying to get him to do. But what you just said is interesting. And I'll, again, another follow up that I'll have to ask. Your version makes more sense. It make your version makes more sense. I don't I but that's somehow how I heard it. If any of you that are listening to this are taking notes for some weird reason on all these things that I need to ask Dr. Lean, email me through the website before Thursday. Great. Marlena says, did anyone ask Jay's parents or that's Jody, Jody's parents or sister if the T-shirt belonged to Jody? I don't think so. I think that it was didn't Dr. Lean make a point that they asked Stephen first about if jody would have borrowed janine's shirt because she because she made that point like why wouldn't they wouldn't they go to Jan- they should have went to janine and asked janine that right but instead they asked steven that once they found his dna on it so i think the answer to that is is no they did not ask her if that was her shirt unless they like unless that came later gotcha marlena asks if any of the potential other alternative you know suspects or persons of interest if we know that they've committed any crime since the murder i don't know Jason says, I'm confused about the six and 10 markers for DNA. Can't they go back and add markers if it's a complete profile? I was wondering about that myself. And all I could figure is the way the extraction was done when they extracted the DNA sample and developed the profile, that they would only develop six markers from it. So that profile, you can't add other markers to it the way I understand it. But if you still had the item, you could retest the item to get a 10 marker profile. That's my understanding of it is that when they pulled it out, they only pulled six markers out. So that's all the data they have available. You'd have to go back to the original piece of evidence to retest it with 10 markers in order to get that. Okay. Allison just wants to confirm, has a DNA, a defense DNA expert ever been able to look at the evidence? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like it's been a big fight. And then, as we heard, as they were working towards an appeal and trying to get more testing done, then the state started destroying evidence. The thing that shocked me more than anything, besides some of the stories she told about everything that was going around the crime scene that night, was when she said they've destroyed so much and there's only 300 and some pieces of evidence left. It was like 300 pieces of evidence. That's what's left. So there must have been a ton that they're Mm -hmm. wanting to test. Yeah, I was surprised by that number, too. And I wondered if you were going to call that out. Or not, just as an interesting piece, because I sort you would have expected. I really was thinking she was going to say like twenty pieces left. Yeah, like there's only six pieces of evidence left. She's like, there's only three hundred eighty-nine pieces left, or whatever the number was. I was like, wow. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, like, what are all those? You got the clothes. Are they talking about all the different swabs they must have taken? There must be a ton of evidence like that. Sure. Getting in a little bit to the jurors now, Lynn says, do we know if jurors were permitted to take notes with so many conflicting times being testified to? I would find it incredibly difficult to interpret. I don't know, but someone else had asked, too, if the jurors have ever like talked about the case. And then someone, thankfully, I think it was Jeannie, Janine, somebody had responded to that. Yes, correct. Uh, Bethany says, have any jurors been interviewed since the trial? And Jeannie says, in the Scottish system, jurors in Scotland are not allowed to comment on anything that went on in the discussion room during deliberations at any time, even after the trial. They can only speak about what actually occurred in open court and their names are not released to the public. Thankfully, that's a that's not an I don't know, because Jeannie knows the answer. Thank you, Jeannie. 
Rebecca says this is more of a question to last week's follow up. You said that fundraising by or for the defendant in Scotland is against the law. What about raising the money here in the States and then gifting it to Dr. Lean, say, for her birthday or Christmas? It blows my mind that you can't raise money to help a defendant. Yeah, I don't know there. I know that she said that within Scotland, they have there have been many attempts to kind of circumvent. So I think at one point there was a fundraising effort to raise money for Luke's mom. And then she made the comment that she was going to put all that money. You know, the, the intent of the fundraiser was supposedly for her to get better living situation. And she had made a comment like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to take this money and help with my son's defense. And then the fundraising site took it down and returned everybody's money. So they're they're pretty strict about it over there. I think there's probably ways to do that. And again, D- Dr. Lean suggested that the best way to help that's that's available and easy right now is go buy her book because she's spending the proceeds from that to help in the defense. Great. And then just to end on Bethany, who asks, maybe we'll get into this later, but what kind of prisoner is Luke? What has he been like in the time that he's been incarcerated? I do not know the answer to that. And with that, Janet has a hard out. That's the end of our questions. And this has been the I Don't Know Show. I want to thank you all for joining us. <laughs> Again, I want, to, I want to apologize. I hate I hate not knowing the answer to all your questions. I don't want to give you an answer I am unsure of. And so hopefully you guys are, are able to bear with the fact that that's why I keep bringing Dr. Lean on because she can answer some of those. So yeah. I'm going to try to go back through this before I interview her on Thursday and pick up all the different things that we brought up here that need to be asked. And with that, go and wrap this thing up. Thank you all so much for joining us. Subscribing. We got a lot of stuff coming on. We're going to be getting, we're going to get deep into the Anand Syed case. And I, and I do want to tell you too, a lot of people, like we did this in, in season one, but I keep saying like, that's where my head's at right now, because this process of going through the case episode by episode, based on what the prosecutors were covering has been extremely meaningful to me and has been very enlightening looking at things from a different direction, because rather than just going through and looking at what evidence is out there that shows that he's innocent, Now I'm looking at, okay, here's the guilty argument. What do the facts say about that? So what I'm saying is when you hear the series, when it comes out on the main feed, if you're not on the Patreon, you're going to hear in the, in the patrons, I think will vouch for this. It's a very different take than I think anyone's ever heard before, because we're breaking things down in a much different way than they've been done before. So really looking forward to that. And for the second time, third time that, that bye guys. Thanks everybody. Bye guys. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kaywood Yomnik, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. 
For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney, and Zach is at Z to the Q. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>